The Anton Savage Show on News Talk. You will not have missed, of course, that we are at the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. An awful lot of people receiving an awful lot of just plaudits. Possibly one person not receiving maybe as much as they deserve. That person being the Northern Ireland Secretary Mo Molum, who, of course, broke the mould for Northern Ireland secretaries by being what seemed impossible before her, which was popular north of the border, south of the border and popular in the UK as well. And uh, we're going to talk in a second to Henrietta Norton, who is her stepchild. Uh, but first, let's remind ourselves of uh, Mo herself. Here's a clip of her on The Late Late Show in 1998, speaking with Gay Byrne. We inherited a situation where progress was being made and the people wanted progress to happen. Parties have worked at it. Now, of course, we've worked hard and we were very clear when we went in that the process had to be as inclusive as possible and we had to move it forward as, with the greatest momentum as possible. But we couldn't have done it unless there was a will to do it. Um, and all I've really brought to it is a determination and what I call a nag factor. That's Mo Molum speaking to Gay in 1998 and of course there was one little girl who got to witness Mo Molum's um, performance and effect and life through that little girl's formative years. That was Mo's stepdaughter. She travelled with her to through uh, Northern Ireland and spent huge amounts of time with her through that most critical period in the development of the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, that little girl, now grown up, is Henrietta Norton. Morning Henrietta. Good morning. Henrietta, we'll talk about politics, we'll talk about uh, Northern Ireland and all of that. Before we get to that, can you tell us about meeting Mo? Yeah, I met Mo when I was eight. So I went with my dad and my little brother to stay with her in her constituency house. At this point, they weren't together. Uh, They were just friends. And the first morning I met Mo, she came out of her bedroom and whisked my brother and I downstairs for breakfast And we got into the kitchen and there were cigarettes on the table and kind of drinks from the night before and general kind of um, debris. And I looked at her, my brother looked at her, and we were sort of expectantly hoping that maybe we could have some breakfast. And she sat down, put her feet up on the table, lit a cigarette, and clearly had absolutely no idea how to make breakfast. (laughs) Uh, And we were kind of fascinated by this woman who was also incredibly welcoming and warm and kind of instantly we felt very at home and comfortable with her. And my dad then appeared and made breakfast. And that morning, Mo then took us off to the beach across the road in her constituency in Redcar. And actually from then on, basically, Mo was my stepmom. There was no resentment of her, the, none of that sort of classical assumed thing of, of usurping the role of your mom or anything like that? No, I had four parents. My mum had a partner and um, I just sort of always grew up feeling like I had four parents. And Mo and I just, and my brother and her just instantly clicked. And she used to say to my dad, I think, you know, when he met her, he said, but I've got these two little kids. And, you know, and she'd say, yeah, but they're like your arms and legs. They just come with you. And uh, we always felt like that, I think. It was just, we were just an extension of that relationship. And she was incredibly inclusive and we just... From then on, wherever we she went, we sort of all went. That included know? Northern Ireland, didn't it? Her period as Northern Ireland Secretary, you travelled with her and spent a lot of time in the North. Yeah, we travelled a lot with her. So obviously, Freddie and I were both, my brother Freddie and I were both at um, school in London and my mum and my stepdad lived in London and my dad worked in London. So we spent a lot of time in the week in London. And obviously, we also had to kind of balance with her most constituency. But actually, the period of time we were in Northern Ireland, from the day Mo arrived 
officially as Northern Ireland secretary. I remember the night of the 1997 election and then her and I travelled for her constituency down to London, did various things that I didn't entirely understand what they were, but she had to go to Buckingham Palace and she had to go to number 10 and I kind of sat in the car while she did it. And then I remember flying out to Belfast with her and arriving at Hillsborough and the kind of madness of that, you know, and I remember her sort of turning to me and saying, don't get used to this. This isn't, you know, this isn't normal, but, you know, we're going to be here for a while and we're going to have, it's going to be tough, but we're going to have lots of fun as well. And we then spent most weekends there. We would fly, Mo would often fly over on a Wednesday. We'd come and meet her on a Friday. We'd stay the weekend and we would spend our holidays there as well. So we were there over that Easter break 25 years ago. And it wasn't, of course, your first experience or Mo's first experience of Ireland. You used to holiday in Cork. Yeah, we spent loads of time in Ireland. So we we used to spend most Easters and a lot of the summer um, down in West Cork in Glandore. I have amazing, amazing memories. And actually to this day, my husband's Irish and we take our children back as much as possible. And it was a very happy um, family place for us where I felt very at home and we had a lot of good times. Now that affinity with Ireland doesn't change the fact that Northern Ireland Secretary is one of the UK cabinet positions that nobody ever wants and that Mo herself, if reports are correct, didn't want when she originally got it. Did you get any sense of that at the time, that she was disappointed? Because she was seen as a, something of a coming star. She was influential within the Labour Party. There was a sense that she might she might have gotten a better gig. It's really hard because I have actually gone on the record before and said that Mo really did want the job. I don't know if I'm right or anyone else is right about that. Probably everyone else. But I think that's indicative of saying that I do not remember in any way her feeling like she didn't want the job. I think Mo enjoyed a challenge. She wanted to do things that were really going to impact change and make a difference. And she wanted to do things that made a difference for the community and on the ground and with real people. And whether she wanted the job or not, I guess we'll never know. And But she'd invested an enormous amount in the role as Shadow Secretary of Northern Ireland. And I think that anything that enabled Mo or, or created a space for Mo to actually spend time with the people, with communities, with women, um, talking to people and affecting change in that sort of grassroots space, I think was perfect for Mo. So even if she had maybe moments before she got the job of maybe wanting something else, I don't know, I think once she was there, she was completely committed and in love with that job and she inhabited it and she took it on and it was what she was living for on some, you know, apart from family and friends and all the normal things. You know, she really, really believed in achieving peace and finding a way through to somewhere better. Talk to me a bit about her popularity because that really was extraordinary. Northern Ireland secretaries had never been, to the best of my knowledge, popular anywhere. Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, the UK, this was not a role where you went in and expected, as she ended up getting, standing ovations at the Labour Party conference, chat show appearances, and a sort of a benign warmth from all and sundry. What was that like to experience? Because if you were travelling with her, you would have seen it. It was amazing. And I think she sort of, it came so naturally to her. It wasn't, the thing about watching Mo was it It never felt, obviously she was um, a politician. She was 
aware of what she was doing and how she was impacting things. And I think she thought very carefully about everything she said. I think that's sort of myth about Mo, that things kind of came out of her mouth. I think um, she really thought about what came out of her mouth, um, mainly. Um, but I think um, watching, she'd always been popular. She was popular as a backbencher in her constituency in Red Car when I was eight. You know, I was 13 when Mo got into Northern Ireland. And she just had this affinity with people. She genuinely loved speaking to people, talking to people, getting involved. Um, she'd often sit with children at the table over sitting with adults. She, she just disarmed people and she made people feel heard and people feel listened to. And I think that that just created this sort of aura around her where people loved her. And I mean, it was overwhelming. It was hugely overwhelming. You know, you'd walk down the street and you couldn't go anywhere without her being stopped in the street. But, you know, I think the other way, which a lot of politicians um, experience of huge negativity and often quite a lot of hate. I mean, I think we were incredibly lucky in the sense that we were exposed and she was exposed to people who just loved her and wanted to be around her, which is, while sometimes overwhelming, a... um, a very beautiful thing as well, I think. Well, on that thing of Mum Olam's ability to build relationships, on the As I Remember It podcast, Martin Mansra talks about that seminal moment where she went and met loyalist prisoners in the maze and to some extent attributes that as a, a, a an inflection point in the peace process. And of course, that wouldn't have happened was it not for her ability to make people trust her. Then... And I'd always give her most credit for this. I mean, Molam did something, she was the Northern Secretary, uh, something immensely courageous against advice. She went in and met the Loyalist prisoners. And that, I think, brought home to 10 Downing Street that the prisoners have to be part of the solution, otherwise there won't be one. Now, can I ask around that, Henrietta? And by the way, we are um, speaking to Henrietta Norton, who is the stepdaughter of Mo Molum, about Mo's role in the Good Friday Agreement. Around that time, I think she was asked by a journalist if she thought it was a risk to have talked to the Loyalist prisoners. And she said something along the lines of, it may have been a better risk to arrive here at a time when my popularity is higher in the polls than my own prime minister. That might have been the bigger danger. Was there a tension between her and Blair? I think it's so hard to know. I I wasn't party to it. I think that Mo definitely was doing things that she believed and I'm that were going to affect a change, like going into the prison to talk to the prisoners. I think Mo was following her instinct. I think she was basing it on the conversations she was having with um, people outside the prisons, families, wives, daughters, sisters, children. I think she she was headstrong and she made decisions based on what she thought would work. I think sometimes not, I think she could, um, she ran into difficulties with many people in, um, in kind of the negotiations and more broadly across the government for, for those acts. And um, I can see that that could be a kind of bit of a live wire to have in your cabinet if they're not entirely um, doing what they're being advised to do. Um, But I never was party to hearing them having any form of disagreement over it. 
But um, yeah, you'd have to ask Tony Blair. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put in the call. Um, <laughs> the other thing, of course, that she was very uh, stoic and largely silent about through the entire uh, period was the significant health challenges that she was going through. Can you tell us the impact they had on her? Yeah, again, I think um, Mo was very single-minded and I think it would be a lie to say that, you know, hearing that you have a tumour and you have cancer and you're going to be very, very sick is going to be anything other than devastating, particularly at the point it came in her life. She was very young and she was at the pinnacle of her career. And it was, you know, she was just looked very likely Labour about to win the election in 97 and she was going to get a big role. And this was sort of, you know, she had so far to go, I think, and she was hugely popular. And um, we can all sort of uh, theorise on what might have happened if she hadn't been sick. Um, but I also think that she told a few people who were her support network and then she kind of, beyond the treatment, I think she just put everything into um, her job. And maybe that's because she knew potentially she didn't have as long as other people. Um but did it, the, was it did it leave her tired? Did it take much physical toll on her? Did did she change as a person because of it? Because you describe her as being fun and vivacious and maverick. I would imagine it is it's hard to do that when you have a significant job that rests on your shoulders. It must be particularly hard to do it when you are unwell and worried. She was very tired and she had really brilliant people around her. So for example, Betty Boothroyd, who at the time was leader of the house in Westminster, she had told Betty after her treatment, she would go to Betty's apartment and someone in Betty's apartment would make my Marmite on toast and a cup of tea and Mo would have a nap. And I think she had people like that dotted around who were there to help her. Saying that, I think there's a lot of conversation around how much Mo changed. I think Mo in later years, I mean, I know Mo in the later years when she got really, really sick after Northern Ireland, um, ultimately it did affect her memory and her abilities and her physicality. And we all saw that kind of decline. Um, But in terms of her sort of outspokenness and her vivaciousness and her warmth and her, she was like, from my perspective, she was like that from the day I met her. Um, And yes, she was tired, but the job was stressful. I mean, anyone in that job would be tired anyway, but I think the job and the role and what she was doing also gave her an energy and kind of um, actually helped her to kind of keep above the illness and to um, prior- think about something else and to feel like she was uh, living for for something else that was, you know, kind of carrying her through. Five years ago, you wrote a piece for The Guardian on the 20th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement saying in essence and in summary that she had been if not forgotten, not given the attention or the limelight that she deserved in the anniversary celebrations and reflections uh, by those involved. Do you think the same is true on the 25th? I think the 25th has been quite different. Um, I am obviously yet to see how things play out over the next two weeks, but I do know that, and whether it's because I wrote the article or it would always have been the case, we will never know. Um, But... Um, I do think, you know, I've heard her name mentioned at a number of things. I was in the States recently and she was spoken a lot about at a Women at the Helm event in Georgetown. Um, she is, um, I went to a really beautiful 
event at the Abbey last weekend, and which I was invited to her to sort of to represent Mo on her behalf. And she got many, many mentions, not to mention in the middle of um, Two Point Pints Roddy Doyle uh, performance. Um, and I know that over the next 10 days, there are a number of events taking place in which she is being honoured and talked about. So we will see. I think often it is the case, and I think people would agree with me, I think often it is the case that sometimes uh, women have to shout a bit louder, potentially, to get heard. And also, you know, as I've been told, I'm making a film at the moment actually called Mo and Me, which is a documentary about Mo's life and our life and going on a journey to sort of discover a bit more about Mo, who died when I was 21. But, you know, one of the things I've heard is she wasn't the prime minister, um, which is quite an interesting, or the president, or, you know, she, she, she wasn't one of those people. So I think sometimes people have to shout a bit louder. And when you're no longer alive, that's harder to do. Last thing, Henrietta, when you miss her, what do you miss? Oh, I miss all of her. I miss, it's, um, yeah, she was she was an amazing, amazing stepmom. I loved miss I miss talking to her. I miss hugging her. I miss she was so sort of physical as well as emotionally present. And um we just had a really good time. I miss the friends and the parties and the playing games and the being in West Cork with her and going on holidays and yeah, and obviously all of that as well comes with missing my dad, who's also no longer alive. So I just miss, I miss them both a lot. Um, but they were an, they were an amazing pair to have in my life while I did. Henrietta, thank you so much. That was Henrietta Norton, who is, of course, stepdaughter of Mo Molman. If you want to hear more about those involved in the Good Friday Agreement, you can take a listen to the News Talk podcast, as I remember it, Bertie Ahern and the Good Friday Agreement, which is available now wherever you get your podcast. The Anton Savage Show, Saturday morning at nine on News Talk.